um, <coughs> by uh, with something we, we could have done yesterday, but <coughs> we missed it. But we'd just like to begin by um, acknowledging the the people, the peoples who were living on this land before they were unseated. So the the Miwok, Pomo, and Ohlone people, so past, present, and future. So we tend to think of these people as some somewhere in the past who lived on this land a long time ago and, and no longer exist, but these people do still exist. So I, I had a, I remember going to a climate rally in Oakland a few years ago and a young man got up on the stage on the microphone and he said, I am Ohlone. They, they say we no longer exist, but I'm here. So I uh, just want to honour those past, present and future. And also just sitting here looking at the image of the Buddha there opposite me and you have here behind <coughs> behind us. I'd also like to pay homage to the Buddha who gave these teachings and not you know gave the the essence of these teachings and, and the, the many, many people who've passed these teachings on over the last two thousand five, six hundred years. So for a long time those teachings were given orally. People had to learn them and pass them on orally and then um, you know, hundreds of years down the down the line, they they were written down, actually in a in a place called Aloka Vihara in Sri Lanka. So the same name as our monastery, as it happens. Not that's not why we chose the name, but and uh, so these books and you know the chanting books and the 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 sh- the sheets that we printed out, you know, those contain teachings that have been passed down over thousands of years and so just to you know and they're liberating teachings so just to bear that in mind and uh, and to to use those as also as a support for mindfulness so not treading on them not sitting on them not you know resting your feet on them this kind of thing you know think about like oh these are really precious actually so um you know, if if you have already, don't feel like oh no, I'm so terrible. We learn as we go along, but to to, to recognise that they they contain teachings that point towards liberation. It's nothing more precious than that. So I'm going to begin by paying homage to the Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddhang tamang sankang namasami. So the theme of the retreat is um, seven treasures for transformation, and these are the the jewels of the seven awakening factors. <coughs> Deva, that's come, <laughs> singing a little song, um, and. Uh, it's it's beautiful to go straight to the awakening factors, but uh, the Buddha gen- frequently puts together 
the, the five hindrances and the seven awakening factors. So the five things that pull us off track and the five things that take us back onto the path. And, uh, and I've also heard that the five can be divided into seven and, and so they kind of become parallel. Um, so I want to begin by speaking a little bit about the five hindrances or the seven hindrances, if you like. And uh, <coughs> we we're probably all very familiar with them already as theory and as practice. Uh, but it's worth mentioning them because very easy just to identify with the hindrances and think they are me. And, uh, and then get some stories spinning on me and my mind and I'm always like this and I shouldn't be like that. And you know, hopeless case scenarios and all of that. So, uh, so let's start with the hindrances. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so the Buddha points to, and they're called hindrances because they, they slow us down, they pull us off track. They're not, uh, it, they're, they're things that, that, that pull us in the wrong direction, but they're not, they, that, but we, we can be stronger than them. We can be cleverer than they are. So they only hinder us, they don't absolutely stop us. <coughs> Excuse me. So the first of the hindrances is sensual desire. The, the longing for something outside of ourself that will make us whole, to, that will bring us satisfaction. And uh, sensual desire it has this movement. It's what we pull towards ourselves. That, uh, that we feel like if we just have this experience or this thing or this whatever it is, then we will be satisfied, we'll be complete, we'll be, we'll be able to find that peace and that happiness that we're looking for. But uh, I'm sure we've all tried that quite a bit maybe. And, and the thing is, it does give us that for a, a moment or two we do get that satisfaction for a little while and then it changes and then the desire arises again and then we remember like, oh, well, when I, when I had that last time, that was good for a bit, so let me go back to that. And then we, look, we seek again and again for that something that will give us the satisfaction that we're craving, the, the sense of wholeness and completion, completeness that we're craving. And, uh, but just like drinking salt water, you know, the more we drink, the thirstier we get. The more we try to satisfy our craving with, with, with that thing that gives us la um, temporary gratification, the more the desire grows, and, and on that goes, and on that goes. Uh, so it's a, an endless cycle of, of wanting that some of us may be very familiar with. I'm very familiar with it. And, uh, and knowing it doesn't make it go away, unfortunately. <laughs> that would be nice. But uh, it's a, it takes a bit more than that. So recognizing, but knowing is a very, very important part, beginning. So to know the hindrance of sensual desire as that. So when the mind is wandering into places where it's dreaming of some lovely something or other that's so much better than this, you know, some somewhere we can be in the future, or someone we were with in the past, or some delicious something that we can we can eat, you know, whatever it is. That uh, when our minds go into those places, just to recognise, oh, this is the hindrance of sensual desire. It feels kind of harmless often, 
until it gets too much momentum and then it starts to destroy our lives. But it can feel quite harmless. Oh, I'm just, you know, just have a little fantasy about this. and I'll just think about what's going to be, you know, for dinner tomorrow or whatever. You know, it can, be, it can feel really harmless. And it can be relatively harmless, but it's also it's pulling us away from presence. But if we bring presence to that and know it for what it is, then we start to uh, turn things around. And and when we remember that, um, you know, the the Buddha speaks about the the gratification, the danger, and the escape in relation to sensual desire. So the gratification is knowing, like, yeah, if I get that, it's going to be good for a little while. And it will give me that satisfaction, I know, because I tried it before and it was good for a little while. Or maybe I haven't tried it yet, but but it's holding a lot of promise. And so, um, so the Buddha points to the gratification. He doesn't deny that that temporary gratification, and then the danger. And the danger is that that changes. It lasts only for a little while, and then it's gone. And then we're back to square one. And the escape. He uses that. Well, at least that's the way it's translated. The escape from that endless cycle of following sensual desire is uh, is. Um, renunciation. So to give up uh, a, a small gratification for a greater one. Um, anyone who's been, well it's all of us really, but it's, it's more obvious to some than others, but anyone who has been caught in the grips of addiction know at some point you realise like, you know, giving this up, you give it up for a, for a greater happiness. And uh, in a way, the Buddha is pointing to that, uh, that we're all caught in that same habit of addiction to, to pleasant feeling. And we move towards pleasant feeling and we move away from unpleasant feeling. But as a human being, as a, as a sentient being, really, as, a, as a, an animal or a human being, we can't only have the pleasant feeling. There has to be both. So there's painful feeling, there's pleasant feeling, there's neutral. That's just the deal you know that's how that's how it is when we come into this world and yet we you know we want the pleasant and we don't want the painful and we ignore the neutral <coughs> and in doing that without clear understanding of what we're doing it's like we're, we're constantly just on the hamster wheel in a way we're just constantly in that cycle of of becoming and uh, there's no end to it. The Buddha says that there is no no discernible beginning or end to that cycle. That's worth remembering. There is no discernible beginning or end to that cycle of seeking pleasure, trying to get away from pain, and ignoring the neutral. So the hindrance of sensual desire is the first one to get familiar with and to recognize and to know it for what it is. And... Uh, and to know that that is not who and what we are. So when that arises, it's not I'm 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 a bad person because I've got sensual desire. It's just the hindrance of sensual desire is arisen in the mind. And uh, then the second is the the uh, hindrance of ill will, aversion, not wanting. And that's the opposite movement. It's pushing away. If I just got this out of my experience, everything would be okay. If that person just wasn't in my life, everything would be okay. 
if, uh, if the things I liked lasted, everything would be okay. That's maybe going back to the pleasure again. So the you know, ill will, it's kind of a broad umbrella and it covers you know, from intense hatred to just a kind of like, mm, I wish that would be different or, I, or even just something as subtle as boredom. And fear also comes under that. Fear kind of is partly under the umbrella of ill will and partly under the umbrella of, of um, restlessness and agitation. It kind of has both. So getting to know those those two, they they pull us, they can blind us and, and pull us off track. And uh, and again, you know, not to not to become somebody who is, you know, I am a I am a I mean we say it, I'm an aversive, I'm a greed type, you know. We have the leanings, but it's not that we that is who and what we are, but those are the 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 inclinations of the mind and we can change that, we can guide that. So sensual desire, ill will, sleepiness and dullness, or sloth and torpor. And that's like a, a sleepiness of mind and a, and a heaviness or dullness of body. And uh, restlessness and agitation. So one's, uh, so sleepiness and dullness, not enough energy. We need to arouse energy. And the restlessness and worry, too much energy. We need to calm that energy. And then uh, the fifth hindrance is the hindrance of doubt. And doubt is like a, a perpetual circling. Should I do this or should I do that? Am I doing it right? Did they mean this or did they mean that? And it goes around and around and, and it sort of tells us the story that if we just keep going, I used to have a lot of doubt and it would be like, oh, if I just keep going, if I just keep going and just keep asking the questions, eventually it's gonna become clear. But actually what happens is you just get more and more entrenched in doubt. It gets stronger and stronger. So when there's doubt, one needs to just pick up a practice and, and try it out and see what happens. And then, uh, you know, use your discernment. Is this, is this working or not? Is this helpful or not? And if it's not, pick up a different practice and try that out. But uh, endless doubt does not go anywhere but around and around. So those are the five hindrances, and they can be made into seven with, with those middle two, the um, sleepiness as one, and dullness of body as, as another one. And then restlessness as one, and, and uh, restlessness of body as one, and agitation of mind as, as the other one. So, uh, so those seven kind of, so they could be the seven hindrances and the seven awakening factors, and they can kind of parallel together. So we, we will all be probably familiar with those hindrances and they are, are likely to arise during the retreat. And so just to know them for what they are. And I feel the Buddha was incredibly compassionate in, in just laying them out like that, that, that they are hindrances. They're not, they're not me, they're not mine. They're not who and what I am. It's so easy to identify with them. But he's, he's, not, he's pointing to like, no, that they're not who you are. They're, they're what obscure your mind. And, and the potential of your mind is to be awake, is to be fully awakened. And then he points us to the awakening factors. And um, many years ago, many years ago, before I was a nun, um, and, and when I lived with my partner, 
uh, we had a, a shrine to the Buddha, and on, in the center of that shrine were the, was a list of the seven factors of awakening that my partner had written down, and, and uh, he put that right in the center of the shrine. And uh, I would look at that list, and I just had it like a blank, and you know, I couldn't, I could never remember them. I sort of had this block of like, well, they're factors of, of awakening, and they're like enlightenment factors, and I'm nowhere near enlightenment, so. I don't even know where to start with that. So there'd be this kind of shutting down around this list for years. And uh, <coughs> and then eventually, at some point, I looked at them and I was like, oh, mindfulness. I know how to do that. Sati, that's not so hard. Sati Bojanga. And then... Uh, Dhamma investigation. It's often translated as investigation. I like to think of it more like an inquiry, like a, a kind of a, a, a curiosity and an interest and a, and a listening of like, oh, what's going on? So first there's the sati and then there's the like, oh, what is going on now? What is this? Where is it in the body? What does it feel like? What is it, what is it doing? Is it wholesome or is it unwholesome? Is it going to take me in the right direction or in the wrong direction? What do I? What? What's the energy around it? You know, just like these kind of questions. And, and it's not up here in the head so much. You don't want to spend too much time up here because that it doesn't get enlightened necessarily. It's, it's the it's the chitta, it's the heart mind that it wakes up. But it's like a it's like dropping down into the more experiential mind and and being curious and interested. And then the virya energy is like sustaining that interest, staying with it long enough to get some clarity. They're kind of not that difficult. They're very accessible. And then uh, as you keep going, so those first three, they're what we can do. We can, we can intend those and put our, put our attention into those, we can, we can bring them, we can bring them into consciousness. And even uh, I have heard some uh, great meditators and scholars say that this isn't possible, but it certainly works for me, and I know other people for whom it works. Um, you know, with the hindrances, once we notice, once we become aware that a hindrance is present, then we can start to apply those first three awakening factors to the hindrance. So there may be um, a sense of, you know, maybe you may be sitting with a sense of, of sorrow. I had this very strongly once with sitting with really, really strong sorrow. And then, and there it was, it was sorrow, and she's kind of under the umbrella of ill will. And uh, it was very strong, and there were reasons for it, and it was, it was kind of very intense. And then, and then at some point there's this, there was this like recognition of oh, it's, it's sorrow, and it's like this, and then recognizing like oh that's like it's sati, it's mindfulness or awareness that knows that. So when there's no awareness, no sati, then we're just in it, and we become the sorrowful one, with a story as to why it is like that, and why we're justified. And poor me, you know, all of that. And then when there's sati, there's the knowing of it. It's, different. it's a completely different quality. And so there was the sati, there was the knowing, and there was the sorrow. And then there was the interest of like, 
Oh, you know, what does it feel like? Where is it in my body? How does it move? What kind of energy does it have? How do I know that it's sorrow? And then there's, so then Dhammavichaya, the investigation was, uh, was operating, just kind of naturally arose. And then because I was curious and interested, then there was energy there. And so those first three awakening factors, you know, there's, a, there's one of the hindrances that arises and then the, those three awakening factors bring that onto the path of awakening. And then I, to my surprise, I found this joy arise, simultaneous to the sorrow. So there's the sorrow, it hadn't gone away, but at the same time this joy arose in me, and it's like, wow. And it was the joy of just knowing things as they are, really. It's like the joy of the Dharma, the joy of the simplicity of knowing things as they are. And being okay with things as they are, and also knowing you know, there's, there are causes and conditions for this. And it's like this right now. And it's changing. And not, not it's changing so it's going to go away and so quick move it along, but just knowing it's not always going to be this way. It hasn't always been this way. It won't always be this way. And it'll, it'll come to its own natural conclusion, cessation. So those, uh, those awakening factors just kind of can arise if we put our attention in the right way. So when we're identified with what's going on in our mind, you know, there's, there's not much room for the wisdom to arise. And, uh, you know, we can get very identified, we can get very stuck in a story, and uh, in a position for or against another. So just to know that, you know, when we're in that and it happens, we're, we're stuck. We're kind of caught by those hindrances or by Mara, as the Buddha likes to put it. So you may be familiar in the suttas that, you know, Mara is depicted as a, like a, as a, in a, in a, as a person, as a, as a, as a character. And, uh, and Mara's the one who's always trying to pull us off track. Who, who will do whatever they can for us not to realize our true potential. So, um, you know, when we're, we're strongly identified with the story, then it's like we're feeding those hindrances. And the more we feed them, the stronger they get. Just like anything, really. And uh, when we bring our attention to the awakening factors, sati, it's hard to identify with sati because there's nothing to hold on to there. It simply is awareness. Awareness. Curiosity. That, investiga- that curiosity that brings us into the present moment. So for, for there to be a me, a story, and a them, there's, there's time. There's like taking a position. And that's what we live from much of the time. And in a retreat like this, we have the opportunity to come back to something a little more immediate, which is where the Dharma unfolds, which is where the truth is found in this, it's imminent, it's found right here. And those qualities, awareness, sati, investigation or inquiry, and, uh, and then the energy to just stay with it, 
they, they bring us directly back into presence, into uh, direct experience. <coughs> so, uh, you know, as I say, what we, what we feed gets stronger. What we feed in our minds gains, gains strength and gains momentum. So, you know, if we're feeding the hindrances, when we're he- let's be realistic, when, when we're he- feeding the hindrances, <coughs> when we're fe- feeding the hindrances, we're making them stronger. And then when we remember and we're, we're bringing sati, we're bringing awareness to our experience, we're making that stronger. So every moment of awareness is, is, a, is kind of like a moment of victory in a way. And we can forget that because we, we kind of, you know, caught in the hindrance, lost in stories and feelings and me and mine and oh dear and all of that. And, and, then, and then we bring the awareness to it. And at first, all we see is what we've been, you know, all we see is the story and the stuff. And then we can, we can get another story going immediately of like, oh, look at me. I'm just hopeless, you know, I'm never going to get anywhere with this practice. You know, because we, we miss that moment of awareness and we go straight onto the next hindrance, you know, criticizing ourselves or feeling hopeless or whatever it might be. So uh, to really pay attention to those moments of awareness that, you know, and that we can bring it, it's, it's here, it's now, it's like even just saying the word awareness, my mind just kind of goes bing. And it's like, oh, there's the room, it's all bright, and you know, there's, there's, it's here, it's accessible. And there are times when I can't do that, when I'm caught, and I can't do it, but I can remember that it's, that it's here. I can remember that it's, it has been accessible. And that can be enough just to start to, to you know, part the, um, the algae of the of the hindrances and see the clear water underneath. So I'm gonna. <coughs> I, I, I used to be one of those people who didn't like people reading poems in Dhamma talks, and now I'm one of those people who reads them. <laughs> Not self. Um, so a friend of ours, Maddie Weingast, um, he made um, some kind of unique translations or, or, or um, adaptations of the Terigata, which is the poems of the awakened nuns of the Buddha's time. And this is the, the Terigata is the oldest known uh, compilation of women's literature in the world, and it is part of the Pali Canon. And there are many translations, quite a lot of them are, are rather dry. And, uh, and he's done a, a different version, sort of from a heart version. So the first one is uh, the poem, and each of them are, are poems are uttered like their utterances of these awakened women, uh, bhikkhunis. So the first one I want to read is Genta, the Genta bhikkhuni, and uh, her name means conqueror. <coughs> and she's speaking about the awakening factors. I was forever getting lost, until one day the Buddha told me, To walk this path, you will need seven friends. Mindfulness, curiosity, 
courage, joy, calm, stillness, and balance. For many years, these friends and I have traveled together, sometimes wandering in circles, sometimes taking the long way around. There were days when I thought I couldn't go on. There were days when I thought I was finally beaten. It's scary to give all yourself to just one thing. What if you don't make it? Oh, my heart, you don't have to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. It's beautiful intention. So the training is really important. How we train our mind is really, really important. But even the word training can kind of bring a kind of like, uh, a should and a shouldn't into the picture. So there's this intention to train ourselves, but to train ourselves gently, to, to be subtle, to be encouraging, to be creative in our training. You know, our mind is, <coughs> for most of us, our minds are like children. You know, we, we grow up and we learn to behave ourselves and to, you know, social norms and to restrain what's, you know, not appropriate and all of that, mostly. Uh, but inside, our minds can still be like children, you know, and then, and then we, we, we come here on a retreat and then there's this long period of time of sitting doing nothing much and then walking up and down and then sitting again, and then getting to eat something, which is like a highlight of the day perhaps, and then come back and more sitting and more walking, and then maybe having dinner, maybe not, you know. And the, for, the, for the child mind, this is terribly, terribly boring. So we need to, um, you know, make it a little bit interesting, find ways to uh, keep the mind engaged in the, in the practice. And uh, I appreciated Venal um, Dhammadipa giving us some, a few tools to play with in the meditation, the sen- like exploring the senses. It's quite an interesting one. And then the cultivating the Brahma Viharas, the heart qualities. This is, uh, these are, this is a really beautiful practice when we cultivate the heart qualities, the four boundless qualities. And there are suttas where the Buddha speaks about how you can put together the awakening factors and the heart qualities, and this is like you know the the most beautiful way we can realize awakening. Beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. To to put together the heart qualities and the the awakening factors, and um, <clears throat> so to you know these are these are lists. You know the Buddha has all these lists, and it can be a little tedious at times, and then. And then, but the, think of them like it's like a kind of like a skeleton. You get the skeleton of the teachings from the Buddha, and then you t- take them and you make them yours. You put flesh onto them, you breathe life into them, and to do that, you, you know, be like you have a license to be creative, to find what works, to find what what is what makes it juicy, what makes it interesting, what makes it practical. So. Uh, we we kind of will keep coming back to the to the essential teachings, but you may have a whole, you know, palette of or 
um, toolbox or whatever you want to call it of ways, techniques or creative ideas that can bring that you can bring to this practice. So uh, and it's so it's really important to to know that you know the mind will when 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 we don't take care of the mind it will wander into the hindrances. It's just going to do that. Often for most of us, unless you're kind of unless you're quite spiritually advanced, very spiritually advanced, perhaps it's going to wander into the hindrances, and so so that's just going to happen, you know. So then you know that it's not who what I am, and uh, and to to meet that as you would meet, you know, it's like if you if you're playing a game with somebody and, and they're 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 pulling you into a place you don't want to be, how do I get back to where I want to get back to? So you know, to to meet it with interest, with with a sense of like challenge, in a good way, rather than defeat. And uh, see what you bring to the practice that that uh, keeps it alive and keeps it connected. We are all very very different and very unique. So uh, you know, we can give you we give you the framework, and then you make it yours. I want to read another poem. The entire path and all you'll ever need to walk it, you will find inside. So the Buddha taught me. Once I took a closer look, all the running around started to seem a little silly. Things changed so quickly. By the time I got anywhere, I'd be somewhere, someone else. You are your mother. You are your daughter. One moment gives birth to the next. What we do is who we become. So what we do through body, speech and mind is who we become. So right now you're doing meditation retreat, investigating the awakening teachings, learning about what pulls you off track. And um, Maddie, who who uh, translated these poems or wrote, uh, sort of rewrote these poems, is a, is also a, a Pali, uh, like has really good knowledge of Pali. So, and he's been staying in our monastery for some months, and uh, so we've been asking him about exploring different words. And then one of the words that uh, came up as as we were looking at this poem was uh, the seventh awakening factor, Upeka, Upeka. So that's usually translated as equanimity. And uh, equanimity, we were talking about this just recently, like equanimity, you know, like whoever uses the word equanimity? I mean, when do you ever hear that word except in Buddhist retreat centers? It just never, it's not used, is it? It's not, it's like a, an odd word. And so then, so it's just kind of a foreign word, so to speak, and then we try and make it fit this concept, and then we're not quite sure what it is. And sometimes it gets called equipoise, and sometimes it gets called equanimity, and it's like, okay, equipoise, oh, is that any more clear, you know? And um, so as we were talking about, so what's the Pali word? What is the actual word in Pali, and how is that translated? And uh, 
So he was saying, uh, it does, it's two, two parts, the word is two parts, upeka. Eka of the upeka is, means looking on, looking on, looking like, and, and the upa, so it's upa and eka, upeka. Upa means nearby, or on, or up, and it has um, a sense of, of location or juxtaposition with looking on. So it's kind of, one of the translations I've also heard is, is having a bird's eye view, or being able to see, you know, the, the, the whole picture. So uh, one of the translations he came up with, which I really like, is, which I've never heard before, is perspective. But Upeka is the quality of perspective, having a perspective on things. You know, you're not just caught up in it. You can, you've got a perspective on it, and it's still in it, but you're in connection. So it's not a, it's not a dissociative, you know, aloof thing. You're in connection with what's going on. You're aware of what's going on. You're responding to what's going on, but you're not caught in it. So Upeka has this uh, quality of perspective. So I just wanted to bring that in because I think uh, sometimes we can misunderstand that word and think we've got to be kind of even, you know, all the time. <laughs> if you've tried it, it's uh, probably, I would say, impossible. <laughs> you know, life is tumultuous. It goes up and down. Our, our moods change. You know, if you have a female body, it changes with the moon cycles. It's like life is not linear. And uh, so Upeka is not trying to make everything flat, never have any ups or downs. It's, it's having perspective on our experience so that we're not thrown around by what's going on. And, and we can see, we can, we can kind of discern when we have perspective. But when we have no perspective, we're just caught up. We're, we're up with the highs, we're down with the lows, we're, you know, we're bored with the middle ground. Whereas the upeka is like, it's knowing it, it's seeing it. It's not becoming it. So I hope that's uh, useful in some way. And uh, the Buddha also gives the image uh, in the suttas of, of um, the awakening factors. So he says the, the factors of awakening, they, they slant, slope and incline towards Nibbāna, towards enlightenment, towards awakening. Just as the river Ganges slants, slopes and inclines towards the east and towards the ocean, the awakening factors slant, slope, and incline towards the, towards nibbana, towards awakening. And what supports those awakening factors to arise? He mentions good friends, good friendship, people who take you in the right direction. Um, sila, so good ethics, and uh, careful attention. So just, to, and just as careless attention feeds and nourishes the hindrances, careful attention feeds and nourishes the awakening factors. So those are the things to watch out for and to, and to appreciate and uh, nurture.
And to remember that, you know, however f- lost we might feel, however far you might feel from being an enlightened being, we all have this potential to awaken. It's like a, it's a legacy. So we receive the legacy of the hindrances, the stuff we've, the stuff we've got to clear out. It's like the, you know, we all have our ancestral legacies that we have to work through. Can go on for generations. And uh, and then there's the the legacy of of awakening. It's the this this beautiful legacy that the Buddha has reminded us of. It's something that's that's here in the potential in the hearts of every every one of us and it gets dusty and forgotten and doubted and you know distracted away from but it's here it's in the room it's in the heart so these practices that we are pointing to over these these days these few days this short are pointing us back to that potential that we all have to realize awakening. And we may have just little glimpses and that's really important. Even the tiniest glimpse is important. And also just to say with the, with the hindrances, because we're very good at seeing what's not good, you know, what's wrong. So we might be good at noticing what hindrances are present. But uh, we also need to notice what hindrances are not present. So this is a really beautiful teaching that is in the suttas, remarkably, where the Buddha encourages us to notice, you know, is there sensual desire present or not? And if there isn't, to appreciate that. Is there ill will present or not? And if there isn't, to rejoice in that. You know, is there sleepiness and dullness present or not? Is there restlessness and agitation present or not? Is there doubt present or not? So it's not just what is there, but what is not there. It's important to notice because we can skip that. And uh, you know, it may maybe that we we've got a lot of restlessness and agitation, but we haven't got sleepiness and dullness. We can appreciate that. It's this the Buddha's teaching, you know. Or we're not uh, lost in sensual desire, or we, we're at least clear that we have restlessness and agitation. We're not caught in doubt. You know, it's kind of sweet. It's kind of generous. You know, it's like notice what's what's uh, what's there and what's not there. So, let's see if I'm going to read you one more of these before I finish. So this is uh, this is a poem about sati, about mindfulness. <coughs> it's by uh, another sama. So there's two samas. S A M A. And this is a bhikkhuni, so right her poem of enlightenment. After 25 years on the path, I'd experienced almost everything except peace. When I was young, my mother told me I would find true happiness only in marriage. 
Remembering her words all those years later, something in me began to tremble. I gave myself to the trembling and it showed me all the pain this little heart had ever known. And how countless lives of searching had brought me, at last, to the present moment, which I happily married. <laughs> Can you imagine? We've been living together ever since without a single argument. <laughs> so this is our this is our work to find the present moment, to uh, to meet it with uh, interest and connection and energy and and to let the path lead us back to our natural state to our to our uh, potential so i wish you all well on this retreat and uh, may we all have patience with our shortcomings and appreciation for our strengths our own and each other's Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.